Hello there. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink. I hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and navigating these trying times. If you're doing really well out there, that's great. Please try to be helpful to those who may be struggling or to your community at large. There's so much going on in the world and in our country. It's like decades have passed in a matter of months from the continuing pandemic and its economic impact on millions of Americans to the social uprisings revolving around racial injustice. There's so much I could comment on here. Uh, my, my aim in the podcast is never to tell you exactly what to think, but more so how to think and even when to think. This podcast can be an opportunity for you to zoom out sometimes. You know, we get hyper-focus on certain things going on because they're, they're real and they're painful and they're serious. But it is important anytime you're investigating anything, like imagine studying the night sky through the lens of a telescope and appreciating the detailed information that you can get that way, but then forgetting the wonder of just zooming out and looking at the whole sky with your own eyes. I feel like meditation isn't necessarily tuning out. It could be considered zooming out, taking the broadest view, just pure, open, expansive awareness. And I think it's good to have that balance, to know when to go deep. Sometimes people aren't doing either. They're not zooming in, and they're not zooming out. They're just taking everything as they receive it at that level. And so I would encourage you to do both, and I hope the podcast and these resources can be helpful for you on that front, from the perspective of meditation and an examined life, to give tools and insights to help you parse through the information and misinformation, conflicting and competing ideologies, to find out what's true and what matters. So instead of commenting on any specific political issue, I have started a video conversation series called Live Free or Dialogue. It's a play on words from a state logo, New Hampshire, but it means, look, if we're not all flourishing, then we need to have tough conversations. And if we're not able to talk about things, then the alternative is probably violence. So I started a YouTube channel. Just search Michael Todd Fink on YouTube. Please subscribe to that channel and help it to grow. You can find the Live Freer Dialogue series there. And also, I'm uploading more videos about fullness. And these are short mindfulness lessons. There's kindfulness, there's thoughtfulness, and more coming soon. Also, you may have noticed that it has taken a very long time between this episode and the previous one. I apologize for that. I'm trying to build these resources and be helpful to individuals and the community in a variety of ways. I have about eight, nine episodes on backlog right now, and it's going to take me maybe 100, 200 hours of editing to get those prepared for release. And so I could really use your help to expedite that process. 
So I started a Patreon account to give listeners a way to support this work. If you go to patreon.com forward slash kindmind, you'll find three tier options for supporting this podcast. There's a $5 option, which will give you access to certain exclusive content. There'll be some bonus episodes coming that will be only available through Patreon. There's a $10 option, which will give you that, plus access to the Kind Mind Studio on my website, which is password protected. You'll get the password, and there you'll find more than a dozen guided meditations based off the lessons in mindfulness that you hear in these episodes. That page is going to expand to include wisdom stories for bedtime, some of my favorite mystic poetry, and books that changed my mind. I'll be putting a reading list together there, along with ways to access or or purchase that book. And I hope to build other resources in there as well. But you'll only have access to that if you are a patron through Patreon. And then there will be a $20 option, and you'll get everything in the previous tiers, plus an unlimited pass to any of the Kind Mind gatherings where podcast episodes are recorded. Previously, they were in person. Uh, We had a monthly one near Chicago at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, but now they have been virtual. And there is a meeting coming this Tuesday, July 28th at 7 p.m. Central Time. You can find the details for that on my website. But if you become a patron at that at the third tier, you'd have access to that meeting and all future ones in person or online. And the topic this coming Tuesday is the wisdom of frustration. Now this episode is called What's Your Sign? And it deals in part with the concept of synchronicity, meaningful coincidences. I think I first got exposed to this idea as a as a boy reading the book Celestine Prophecy, and it's a fictional tale about a man who goes in search of insights in Peru. And one of these insights is that there are meaningful coincidences. I've had a lot of synchronicity in my life, and so have my parents and my brother and my band. It's hard to analyze scientifically because a lot of times coincidence and synchronicity has to do with the way that we feel about something, a particular event, or what we are thinking, or what we are dreaming. And it's very difficult to go back and look at what a person was thinking or dreaming. We have to rely on memory. So it's not like we can rewind the tape and say, oh, well, here's a transcript of the thoughts the person was having before this event. Let me give you a couple of profound examples from my dad. When he was in the Navy in the late 70s, abroad in Japan one night around three or four in the morning, he had a dream of his grandfather. He said something to the effect of, I'm leaving you. You're not going to be able to find me on this earth anymore. And my dad woke up distraught, and it was so real, so vivid. He says he can see him clearly to this day from that dream. And then later that day, he received a telegram informing him that his grandfather had passed. And he wasn't 
dying or in the hospital or anything like that. It was unexpected. And he actually passed at the time of that dream. Some years later, maybe mid-80s, my dad also had a dream about his mother. His mom was alive at the time, my grandmother. She came to him in a dream, and she was holding a rose. She said something like, Michael, when I leave, I want you to remember me with this rose. And he woke up again, perplexed, but this time he was shivering. My mom also noticed that his body was very cold. He was like freezing. He didn't know what it meant, but nearly 30 years later, when my grandmother had cancer and was dying, he had the thought to move out to California, be in the area, and he found a job in Santa Rosa, California. Santa Rosa being Spanish for Rose, St. Rose. After she died, when the funeral came back in Illinois, my dad gave a little eulogy at the gravesite outside with a single rose, and he described his mother through that rose, the fragrance, the thorns, and he and his brothers and sisters thought it was so poignant and so accurate of an analogy. But at that time, at that spot, it was freezing. It was about 20 below zero. And so he really was shivering while holding this rose. How do you explain those things? Dreams aren't objects you can hold in your hand or look at under a microscope. I don't know. But it's hard to deny that there is something special or meaningful about it. And I think that's one of the features of synchronicity in everyone's life, that when you talk to somebody about it, it is undeniable that it happened. And yet, I mean, from a rational standpoint, you might say, it's just got to be a coincidence. Like, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Things are going to line up. But from the point of view of the person having the synchronicity, it's really hard to reason away as merely an accident. When I started a, a band, with my brother right out of college, we spent a lot of time looking for other musicians to play with. We didn't know anybody. I moved to Illinois from D.C. to a new home. The only person I knew was my brother. So we didn't have really anybody to reach out to to help us build a band right away. So we had to spend time going to concerts and venues and music stores even. We, we made flyers. Back then there was very limited connection through the internet. There was no social media. And we tried looking in the regions near Chicago, but we were unsuccessful. So I told my brother, I said, you know, we keep going in that direction, maybe going in a rural direction opposite of Chicago. We might find somebody that has less opportunity to play music and would be interested in teaming up with us. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. So we just got in the car and we drove south to the next town, about 20 miles away. We had no plan. We were just going to go town to town, inquiring about where people who played music might be hanging. And we stopped and got gas in that town. I asked the clerk there if he knew of any music stores in the area. He said, what you looking for? You need strings or picks? And I said, no. 
looking for musicians. He said, oh, really? What, what type of musician? And I said, well, maybe a drummer, keyboard player. He said, well, you're in luck, because I'm both. And <laughs> he said, I'm Matt. He said, all right, Matt, well, we'll take this as a, a good sign. When can you get together with us to, to jam? And he said, I'm free tomorrow. And he came over to our studio the next day, and, and we hit it off. And we became a trio called Stone Samadhi. And we had a ton of fun. He eventually moved into our band house back then. And we brought in another musician, become a four-piece, and we did some of our first touring. But it was all based on a coincidence, and the very first person we met in this new search, where we just tossed it up to fate. Eventually, we got into folk music and launched the Giving Tree Band. Our band has toured all over the country and some other parts of the world. And we have had some seriously odd encounters and hard-to-explain experiences out on the road. I'll just tell you one that stands out to me. We had a show in Stillwater, Oklahoma one year, and we got into town fairly early, so we had some time to ourselves before we had to start setting up for the show. So I went my own way and... Uh, found a coffee house to sit down, do some work, and read. And then I noticed a very large man. His arms were like the size of my legs. And he was carrying a lot of stuff, so he probably appeared homeless to me. And he made his way near my table and asked if he could sit down. And I said, yeah, sure. And we started talking. And I could quickly tell that either this person has mental illness, maybe like schizophrenia, or there's something else going on that didn't feel quite right to me. But his main point was that he was not a human being. He'd come back to being a, a blue djinn, is how he described it, like a genie from Middle Eastern mythology. But what was interesting to me was that he talked a little bit about spirituality, mysticism, and meditation, some techniques that I was practicing at the time, it gave me new things to think about. So, I mean, I actually found it beneficial, as odd as he was, and as unhealthy as he may have seemed. But the story doesn't even end there. So, I left, we part ways, and then this person finds, his name was Victor, Victor finds Ethink. And they have a conversation. My brother thinks the conversation is so interesting that he asked Victor if he can record it so that he can show me later on, which he does. He's like, you won't believe this guy I was talking to and the things he was saying. I, I recorded it for you. And I said, well, I had an interesting conversation as well. And it took a bit to realize we were talking about the same person. Then our drummer, Zachariah, who we call Z was uh, over in a grocery store getting some snacks, and that's where he met Victor. Now, mind you, Stillwater's small, but it's not that small. And then they had a meaningful exchange that really touched Z. 
after the show, he encounters Norm and then Charlie, our bass player, sitting outside of the venue late at night. And Victor helps him through something emotional that Charlie was holding on to. And he said he felt this great release after talking to Victor about it and after Victor put his hand on him to comfort him. And even that is not the conclusion to the series of odd coincidences and chance appointments between Victor and the only people I knew at the time in Stillwater. My brother and I had talked to the owner of the venue, who's been there for decades, described Victor to him, said, no, I've, I've never seen or heard anybody like that, and I know anybody unusual in this town. The next day, the band heads out and continues on tour, and a few days later, I get an unexpected phone call in my cell. I don't normally answer numbers I don't recognize, but I did this time, and it was none other than Victor. I hadn't given him my number, but he somehow found the only other person that I knew well in the town, a friend of mine, Rachel, who was finishing her doctorate at Oklahoma State University at the time. And because she thought it was so bizarre that the stranger would approach her saying, he knows me, Todd from the Giving Tree Band, and believes that she would know how to help him get in touch with me, that she felt it was okay to give him my number, and we had a good laugh about that. So then we talk on the phone. And he also draws this uh, symbol for Rachel and says, this will protect you. She doesn't think much of it at, at first, but then sort of like how people see the Virgin Mary and their toast or whatever, she starts seeing this symbol in like her pancakes. And she even took a photo of it and sent it to me and alongside the picture that of the symbol that he drew for us. So to this day, we still don't know how to explain all of that to ourselves, but it makes for a heck of a story. We actually just talked about it recently because she brought it up and I happened to be working on the podcast at the time, which is another funny thing because the whole time I've been editing this episode, all kinds of interesting coincidences have happened while I'm working on a podcast about coincidences. One more real quick. Recently, while I was editing this, I got a message from a listener who was seeking clarification about a story I told in a previous episode on climate change, and I was curious to know how she discovered Kind Mind. And she replied that it was during her study abroad a year ago in Europe. She was searching for information about meditation, and something to give her guidance at the time. And we came to make the connection that she had graduated from a small liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia, and that happened to be the school that I spent the second most amount of time during my college years after Georgetown, because that's where my girlfriend at the time attended school. And we met in Europe on our study abroad exactly 20 years ago. And just like my girlfriend did after graduating from that school, she's moving to D.C. for a job. So I appreciate the timing of her question, and if you're listening, thank you for making this introduction more meaningful for me. So the last thing I'd like to say is that throughout this episode, you will occasionally hear me refer to The Tempest, which is a storm, but I'm actually referring to a short story by that name, written by author and mystic Khalil Gibran, which I read in its entirety to the group the night of this episodes recording back in March or April. 
but I chose not to include it here because it would have added an additional 20 minutes or so, and I didn't want to take that long to get to the core of the topic. But I would encourage you to look that up and read it yourself if you can. Otherwise, I'm going to add it to the Kind Mind Studio along with other wisdom stories. So if you're a second tier or higher patron on Patreon, you'll be able to access that. But it's essentially about a young man. I think it's a semi-autobiographical account of Gibran. And he is trying to win the favor of a mysterious hermit in hopes that he will reveal some of his secrets to him. And he brushes him off a number of times until Gibran is trekking near the hermitage of this mystic in the mountains of Lebanon, and a powerful tempest ensues, and he seeks refuge at the hermitage of Yusuf, the one who has renounced the world, and he has no choice but to take in young Gibran. And from there, some wisdom is transmitted from the teacher to the student, Now, as we prepare to journey into this episode together, I invite you to reflect on the metaphor of the tempest and the storms of your life. Which failures became the stepping stones to success? How have previous setbacks led you to the right path? And where is the opportunity in our present circumstances? Again, I thank you for your support, for listening for sharing, for rating and reviewing this episode and others. The Kind Mind Podcast is back, and I look forward to growing this together. Best wishes to you all. Stay safe, stay strong, and much kindness to you all. I think Carl Jung was the first one to coin that word synchronicity. In his words, it's when separate events are not causally related, but they have significant meaning for the person or for the observer. I've been telling you all kinds of synchronicities of my life throughout the podcast and these talks. So if you want to hear some of the major ones from my life, the episode called Unlost in Transition, I highlight like two or three that resulted in me doing what I do in life. But let me give you a a simpler example of a synchronicity. Coincidences that you cannot find an obvious causal connection for. I mean, think of the times in your life or the conversations in your life where you've said, what are the chances of that happening? That's probably an example of synchronicity. So some years back, my great aunt called my mom. My great aunt's 91 or 92 younger sister of my grandmother, my mom's mom. She said, I had a dream about my sister, your mom. And so they were talking about that. And some of you know that my grandmother died after a heart procedure and was administered the wrong medication. And it was covered up by the hospital. Six months later, one of the nurses leaked the truth to a journalist who reported the story to my family. And then we were involved in a long battle for justice and to bring the truth out about our grandmother's wrongful death. 
when my great aunt was telling, I call her grand aunt, grandmother's sister. My grand aunt was telling my mom that what was being told in the dream by, by her mom, Louisa, my mom heard on the radio at the same time she was in the car, this song called Louise by Bonnie Raitt. I'd never heard that song and my mom had never heard that song. But the premise of the song is that Louise died a wrongful death. Louisa was my grandmother's name, but everyone called her Louise in English. So my mom heard that and then she heard it again that same day, even though she'd never heard it in her life. Then she tells me and my brother, do you think that's synchronicity? Do you think my mom is trying to communicate something to us or to her? I don't know. It's strange. It's what are the chances? We're in the airport at the time. We're holding our guitar cases near the terminal or my, my banjo, my brother has his guitar and a woman walks up to us and says, I see you guys got instruments. I'm also a musician. Just wanted to tell you that if there's one song that I would highly recommend you learn how to play, if you haven't already, it's Louise by Bonnie Raitt. So that is what I think of as synchronicity when when there are these seemingly random events and they all happen in some mysterious way. But what is behind it? And what does it mean? We extracted our own meaning from that. I think that is up to the individual to ascribe your own meaning based on your values and based on your purpose. And in some cases, these synchronous synchronicities can actually reveal your purpose. I mentioned before, we don't find our purpose. Our purpose finds us, but it has to find us living purposefully. So we need to be aware when these things happen and respond in the way that feels aligned with what we care about the most. I want to talk about how synchronicity connects to purpose because I think ultimately synchronicity may be the key to success in life. Through our ego and our pride, we may think, oh, I worked really hard and that's how I succeeded or got this opportunity or beat out the competition. But but that may just mean that a person is not in tune enough with the coincidences of life that made it possible for that success. And ultimately, it may actually be synchronicity that is the secret to success. But let's look at purpose. The word purpose has two parts, per and pose. Pose means to pause, repose, which is to rest, or pausar, which meant to pause in Latin. So repose would be to pause again, but purpose means to pause in the future because per or pro is forth, to pause forward, somewhere forward. So one way to understand purpose is that which will give you rest in the end. Da Vinci said something like, when you live well in the day, it brings happy sleep. And a life well used brings happy death. I find this analogous in an intense yoga class. So I started doing more yoga classes before the lockdown. And you know that feeling when you're in the middle and you're like, oh my God, I can't take any more of this. If we do one more second in this pose, I'm going to go to child's pose. But then you do it and then you get through it and you keep going. You follow 
the guidance of the teacher. And when you come to Shavasana, which is what? Which is the corpse pose. People can find rest very easily, even though they're laying on a hardwood floor with just a little mat. They may even fall asleep. Why is it? Because you accepted the challenge of the teacher in the class. So the whole class, in my mind, is about purpose and repose at the end. But it will not work unless you really applied yourself. And we take yoga classes, and maybe we're taking them online now, because we know that we're just not likely to do the full intensity if we don't have someone guiding us. It's the same reason why people seek out personal trainers, because they know they'll be able to take themselves a little farther than they would otherwise. Well, in life, there may be a teacher, there may be a guru, like I talk about sometimes, but life itself is the teacher. Life is going to push you a little bit farther than you would have ever planned to push yourself. And you have a choice. You get to respond to that as a, a meaningful, synchronous coincidence. And if you do, if you face the challenge and you get yourself stretched psychologically, it prepares you for a good death. And it reminds me of a speech that Martin Luther King gave a few months before he was assassinated. I printed that. I'm going to read a little bit to you. But if not speech, I say to you this morning that if you have never found something so dear and so precious to you that you will die for it, then you aren't fit to live. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls upon you to stand up for some great principle, some great cause, some great issue, and you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job, or you're afraid that you'll be criticized, or that you will lose your popularity, or you're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot you or bomb your house. And so you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. You died when you refused to stand up for right. You died when you refused to stand up for truth. You died when you refused to stand up for justice. That's pretty intense. For him, that was his purpose. I think he was really speaking to himself. It was almost prophetic, right? Just months away from his life being ended. There was probably many moments when Dr. Martin Luther King thought, gosh, this would just be easier if I just enjoy the rest of my life, spend time with my family and live a quiet life now. But there must have been a moment somewhere in, in that process where he understood that this was his life's purpose, that the tempest was this great civil rights struggle, and he had an integral role to play in it. But if he rejected it or if he refused it, then he would already be dead. So I think in our own life, we'll have that. It may be some grand purpose or it may be something more relevant to our family or to our community or to our neighbors. Who knows? But I think each one has unique purpose. Now there's two. There's the big purpose. The big purpose is the spiritual purpose. Why are we here? Because life is so short. And since it's compressed at the end, logarithmic time, 
perceived time is stretched in the beginning. So for the first 10 years of life, life is very long. And the last 10 years of life is very short because each year as we get older represents a smaller and smaller unit of our whole perception of time. So we've already lived most of our life. The three weeks leading up to Christmas for a nine-year-old is equivalent in perception to the entire 75th year of life. So since life is very short, the big purpose with a capital P is who am I? Why am I here? And to continue to ask ourselves that as we face everything. And then there's the smaller P. What is the work that I'm here to do? And Gibran also has a really good few things to say about work in his book, The Prophet. I'll just read a few of those lines. When you work, you fulfill a part of Earth's furthest dream, assigned to you when the dream was born. And in keeping yourself with labor, you are in truth loving life. And to love life through labor is to be intimate with life's inmost secret. But if in your pain you call birth an affliction and the support of the flesh a curse written upon your brow, then I answer that naught but the sweat of your brow shall wash away that which is written. You have been told that life is darkness, and in your weariness you echo what was said by the weary. And I say that life is indeed darkness, save when there is urge. And all urge is blind, save when there is knowledge. And all knowledge is vain, save when there is work. And all work is empty, save when there is love. And when you work with love, you bind yourself to yourself and to one another. And what is it to work with love? It is to weave the cloth with threads drawn from your heart, even as if your beloved were to wear that cloth. It is to build a house with affection, even as if your beloved were to dwell in that house. It is to sow seeds with tenderness and reap the harvest with joy, even as if your beloved were to eat the fruit. It is to charge all things you fashion with the breath of your own spirit. And he who seizes the rainbow to lay it on a cloth in the likeness of man is more than he who makes the sandals for our feet. But I say, not in sleep, but in the over-wakefulness of noontide, that the wind speaks not more sweetly to the giant oaks than to the least of all the blades of grass. And he alone is great, who turns the voice of the wind into a song made sweeter by his own loving. Work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. For if you bake bread with indifference, you bake a bitter bread that feeds but half man's hunger. And if you grudge the crushing of the grapes, your grudge distills a poison in the wine. And if you sing though as angels and love not the singing, you muffle man's ears to the voices of the day and the voices of the night. So it doesn't matter what our work is. What matters is that we do it with love. I've said before that if you can't do what you love, you have to practice loving what you do. And I think we can do that if we are very present and we treat every little thing as an opportunity to bring love into manifestation. So whether I am texting a little note or waving at a person or holding the door for somebody, if it's all mechanical, then life will pass in this robotic way. But as soon as we make each activity an offering, then everything that we do is charged with love and it brings meaning. And it doesn't matter if it's some great purpose or some small purpose, 
What matters is how much love we put into it. Then purpose has another definition, which is to design. So what is the purpose behind this building? What is its grand design? What is the purpose of our life? Mark Twain said the two most important days in a person's life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. This time, it's not the why I was talking about last week, the ultimate cause of things. The why means the purpose. You find the purpose. But think of this word design for a moment. We talked about synchronicity as being the coincidences that become signs in our life about which way to go to travel. So, design. Remove the signs, the synchronicities, collect them, put them together, find the meaning in that, and you will get the ultimate design of your life. The other thing I was saying with accepting the tempest, there'll be big tempests like this, there'll be small ones. If you bring this attitude of purpose to every up and down, you'll find that there's another sign in there. When we had this lockdown, naturally, like so many other people, I lost lots of work, had to cancel our retreat in New Mexico, which would have just concluded yesterday. Many of us feel sad about that because it would have been wonderful to be in the desert together. And then I've had some struggles here and there with with different people to try to come to an understanding about all of this lost work. I'm not talking about the participants, I'm talking about the business partners. So in some cases, it didn't turn out the way I had wanted or would have expected. At first, it triggered anger in me and frustration. And then I stepped back and I meditated and I thought about my purpose. And as I reflected on all of the obstacles that arose, I suddenly saw a new way, a better way to do the work that I'm doing. And when I added up everything that I had lost in this process, and I compared that to what I had learned, I thought for sure what I have learned, I can't put it all into words right now, but it'll unfold in time, is more valuable than what I lost. I would pay that amount to have the insight that I got from this. If we bring that attitude to money, especially, you won't have a low frequency around money. Have a high frequency around money especially small amounts. There's a quote that if you lend your friend $20 and you never see him again, consider it the best $20 you've spent. So it depends on the attitude. And when we're trying to cope with staying in our homes, a friend of mine reminded that Anne Frank and her family had to hide in the attic for two years. And she was saying how people are having a hard time spending two weeks mostly confined to their homes and their family spent two years trying to avoid death and then tragically were discovered by the Gestapo. They were there from 42 to 44 and in that tempest of the Holocaust and Frank had a wider purpose and left us with this journal of observations of what it was like to be in that kind of crisis. And it's been translated into dozens and dozens of languages all over the planet. But there's another uh, story from the Holocaust, which became a book known as Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. He spent two years in a concentration camp 
And the book largely narrates some of his intense psychological experiences on these death marches and so on. And everyone in his family died, his wife and children. I think he had children. And and then he survived those two years and he lived another 50. And his whole mission for the rest of his 50 years of life was to continue his work as a psychiatrist, but he developed a specific kind of therapy known as logotherapy. Logo in Greek means meaning. So he helped people find the meaning in their tragedy. Like Nietzsche said, if a man knows the why, he can endure anyhow. There is one passage from Man's Search for Meaning that stands out to me so much when he's describing being on a a winter march with very little clothing and freezing with his fellow prisoners. And he believed it was at that time that his wife died in another camp. And he describes a vision of her, this luminous being, and she's smiling at him. And then he wrote about what was revealed to him. And he said, I I printed this, a thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which a man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for the brief moment in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of utter desolation when a man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, in honorable way, in such a position man can through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. These are the most extreme tales of synchronicity and purpose. But ultimately, it comes back to how we want to show up in the world. poet named Rabindranath Tagore, one of the great influences in my songwriting, said that slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and I saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. But sometimes people tell me it's kind of hard to serve and to help others when you feel like you have so little. Maybe you've lost your job or maybe you're struggling to make ends meet. But I want to impress upon you that this isn't about being in some important position to help others. This isn't about having a lot of money to make some kind of big grand difference in the world. This is about giving from the heart. This is about being able to smile back at life, being able to offer your presence, being able to bless people with the look in your eyes. And the Buddha even said that the richest person is the one who has the most to give. Now, On the surface, that may mean somebody who has the most money. But just because a person has a ton of money 
doesn't mean it's forgiving. Jibran also said, everything that you have will be given because you have to die. So give now while the season of giving is yours. But a person who has very little in terms of material wealth may have a tremendous amount to give in their heart. And you know that you have that. You feel it. You know that there's so much love inside of you that you want to give to others and to bless others with. So all that means is that you have this great wealth within you. Let it out in whatever way is natural. And don't limit it to a certain pathway like gifts and so on. I'll conclude with four ways to connect the dots of synchronicity and your purpose. The first one is to simply be receptive. If you have strong beliefs about yourself, about the world, well, it'll be very hard for you to cultivate this awareness of coincidences. You may remember the book, Celestine Prophecy. I read that as a kid. One of the beginning parts of it was about coincidences. And that really kind of resonated with me. Like, oh yeah, I have noticed coincidences. And that got me going deeper into other spiritual texts. I've also noticed in my life when I have felt the most lost, the strongest synchronicities occurred. Now I have smaller ones. And so I have to find it within myself to stay true to my path, to be authentic. But when I was younger and I was lost, you could say, or more out of alignment, it was like really magical things seemed to be happening to shake me out of my disillusionment. So I just want to say that as you become receptive, that doesn't mean that some miracle is going to happen just because you're patient and open. And if it has come when it needed to shake you into place, don't demand that it continue to happen just so that you'll stay authentic to yourself. You shouldn't need all of that reinforcement just to be the person that you intend to be. But be receptive. And then secondly, become mindful of your thoughts as events themselves. And then observe events as your thoughts. Because as you meditate, you'll come to realize that you actually do not know the next thing you're going to think. It's as much of a mystery as what's going to happen in the world. Since it's very similar in that way, why not observe both from the same state of awareness? Thoughts are just appearing in your consciousness. But as you pay attention to both, you start to get this separation from identification with your thoughts, and then you can start to see things more clearly. Then thirdly, establish your own meaning with the coincidences. Let it become some kind of guiding influence in your life, some kind of wind, and your values are the, the sails that catches these coincidences and propels you forward. And then the last one, I'm borrowing from author Robert Moss, who wrote a book called Sidewalk Oracles, and that is marry your field. This doesn't mean like marry the occupation that you have. It means whatever it is that you would do if you weren't paid, whatever it is that would keep you up later at night to keep working on, to keep tinkering with, to keep investigating, 
or exploring, whatever that is, that's your field. So that's part of your purpose. And when you start to get that sense of what ignites your passion, then marry it. Marry it means commit to it through the ups and downs. You know, so like many artists that I work with will say, you know, I've, I go a long time with writer's block. So do married people. They go through long periods of time where they don't know how to communicate it. And then other times when they're really on the same page. But you don't just give up just because there's some challenge in theory, right? Unless it's really dysfunctional. But in general, marry your field. And then there's this quote from W.H. Auden. The poet marries the language. And out of this marriage, the poem is born. Even the best gardener cannot say to the sun, shine more, or say to the clouds, rain today. All he or she can do is prepare the field. Where all these coincidences emerge is something yet to be understood. Maybe it's something subtler than time and space. Maybe it's something like the Akashic field that's talked about in the East. Or maybe it's the morphic resonance that thinkers like Rupert Sheldrake have talked about. Or maybe it's the implicate order that quantum physicist David Bohm talked about. Maybe it's like a hologram, seemingly having parts, but all the illusion of one light. And so, of course, there can be coincidences because there's not really the separation that we believe there to be or that our senses tell us there is. Or maybe it's beyond all of that. 